Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Bub Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. And I'm Adam Grossman. Adam, it's good to see you again. It's been quite a while. Yeah, it's good to see you. I'm glad we're able to start a new season. Looking forward to diving into some new topics that we'll be covering in the podcast this season. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting to get into another year of this. And we appreciate all from the listeners and everybody the opportunity to do this again. Last year, we covered some interesting topics. I think we spent a lot of time focused on things like name, image, and likeness and, and all of the, the legislation and, and implementation of that. And I think there'll be more of that this year as it continues to evolve. We covered things, NFTs and cryptocurrency quite a bit. And again, we'll cover those things, I would imagine a little bit this year, but we have some new and interesting topics and guests that we'll cover this year. I think things around sports licensing and more around AI and sports and generative AI and, and how those things can be used in sports. And so I'm excited to get this season started. Yeah, so am I. And I think those the last few topics, that, that's really what we want to focus on today. So we really do want to focus on there's some interesting one of the things that we talk about in our classes is the impact of technology and sports. And that's something that we're really going to focus on on today's podcast, given some of the news that has come on around technology. And we're really going to focus on both ends of the spectrum, some of the most progressive technology that's potentially can impact the sports industry. And then actually going back and looking at some uh, things that people don't consider as technology, but certainly have an impact from a sports licensing and revenue perspective. So looking at both ends of the spectrum, that's probably something that's going to happen a lot in 2023. And it's a good area to focus on. And we'll use sports licensing as a frame to do that. Yeah. And I think it's a really good frame. I mean, you piqued my interest already, Adam. What do you mean around those things that might not be considered technology, but sort of fit in that realm? Yeah. You mentioned generative AI. So on the advanced technology side, probably easier to start there. So then you can see what the anchor is mm. as compared to the non-technology side. But I, I spoke with John Wall Street in an article about generative AI, particularly ChatGBT, which some people may f- be familiar with. Generative AI is the idea of a machine or a machine learning based platform. So being able to create content, in, in this case, create content, typically with ChatGBT, it's focused on chat content, word content, creating sentences, in particular, ChatGBT3 is very good at taking prompts and translating that into words, pictures, images that can then be created in novel context. So people you know, typically will say like, can you create you know, can you create Michael Jordan playing football as part of the Chicago Bears, right? Which didn't exist before. And now ChatGPT can create something that's totally novel and new. So it's using particularly deep learning and basically leveraging large data sets in order to create and in large language models to do basically a form of what you people may be familiar with in terms of autocomplete or autocompletion, right? It can say, based on all the previous examples of data, you know, in these contexts, the most likely thing that would occur next is this. And because it has a prompt, it can take, well, if the prompt is this, then it should look like this. And ChatGPT is not perfect, but you and I were talking before the podcast about some really interesting use cases where it does provide some really interesting results and it really will have an impact on a variety of different industries. And we're going to focus on the sports industry, and we can go into that in more detail, but and happy to do that. But that's one end of the technology spectrum from a sports licensing perspective, which again, we'll dive into in more detail. But the other end is there's actually been a, particularly during COVID and the pandemic, an increase in tangible products or things that can be used in real life. Recently, in a couple different sports uh, publications, there's been focus on trading cards, 
and also board games, and that there's been a spike in consumption on both. And sports trading cards is probably pretty clear. You know, obviously the the main use case for trading cards or one of the main use cases is sports, but this board games is probably less clear. And there's articles that are showing how companies have leveraged sports in the past from a licensing perspective for existing board games. There's also companies that have developed core product offerings around board games, but that's kind of the other end of the spectrum is, you know, a more physical or tangible or non-digital, you know, in real life products as they become more and more popular, contrary to kind of what people maybe think, or just at least in terms of common perception as you know technology moves forward those are kind of both ends of the spectrum both are impacting sports licensing and both have had recent growth in interesting ways particularly over the past couple of months i think the board games and, and the trading cards is really cool coming out of where we were over the last two and a half three years there was so much sitting in front of a screen and so much of experiencing life through a lens that was not in person it was based sitting at your desk and to see those tangible things come back is, is really interesting. I collected baseball cards as a kid, more baseball than anything. But even if you sit and watch TikTok videos, there's tons of videos of unboxing of packs of rare cards and, and it's become much more prevalent. I think you're right that like people in some way are, are yearning for that level of physical good that they can can hold on to and have some level of conversation around. Yeah, I think there's two elements. And I think the first one is what you just highlight is, you know, physical goods can help to build community. People do build communities around. I mean, that's been throughout the history of time, but also particularly now as COVID, particularly in a COVID and then potentially in a, as COVID starts to hopefully continues to recede, that people using physical goods as a way to build community is something that really makes them valuable. So one of the things we talk about in my, in my class and in the in the book that we use for the class, which I, I co-authored called The Sports Strategist, Developing Leaders for a High-Performance Industry, one of the things we talk about is how do people define what actual benefits are from a physical good product or service? And typically you can think of two levels, which are benefits, like what does the product actually do? And then more emotional benefits, like what does the product actually provide to people and trading cards? You know, there's a lot of products that are particularly when you're talking about trading cards or art more generally create, there is no necessarily functional benefit because art trading cards, collectibles, can you actually do with them other than potentially create them as a speculative, you know, as an asset that you can trade, but the function, the emotional benefit is strong, right? I get to interact and, or I get a piece of ownership with my favorite team. I get to be a part of a community. I can talk about it with other, you know, other people who collect these cards, other people who trade these cards and other physical, you know, goods that are being developed. And I think the idea of that emotional benefit, and again, part of the reason that there has been an increase in in sports collectibles, particularly trading cards, is that it's become a much more regular, rigorous and process in terms of cards being able to be verified and and valued, but also in and becomes a potentially a speculative asset as cards become increasingly valuable. It's right. not dissimilar from what art and high end art has happened. That art has become you know, potentially non-correlated with the market, which means our prices and assets continue to increase in value, even if there's downturns or recessions. That seems to be the case, or at least there's a lot of evidence that's the case with trading cards. But similar to art, trading cards, art also has a community that people can build around there. There are both in real life, people meet, obviously talk about art, go to museums, um, 
and also in in digital forms, whether that's in you know Reddit forums, Facebook groups, chat rooms, even through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know those are all visual mediums that can create communities. So I think you know the combination of community plus potentially the realiza- realization that there is a sp- uh, market for trading cards, um, trading collect and other collectibles that can that seems to be non correlated with the larger financial markets or larger economic markets has really led to a rise in trading cards. Yeah, I think it's really cool to see having that tangible asset. Like you mentioned, it you kind of see it as an asset, something to invest in. I think some people look at it that way. There's the emotional connection to it. When you look, though, Adam, in your work from brands that are trying to build these things, is one more important than the other? Meaning the functional use of the product or the emotional response that it engenders is one of those more important to those brands or is it depending on the product? It depends on the industry in sports specifically. I think the emotional benefit is more important generally than the functional benefit, particularly when it comes to collectibles. But the idea behind sports generally, or one of the reasons that sports in a variety of different contexts and revenue streams is the emotional benefit that sports teams and the community building that sports teams provide. We try to quantify that value in the work that I do for Excel Sports Management and Excel Analytics. But I think that is a really interesting question. You can just look at some basic metrics like sports programming generally in the NFL specifically are the top programs on television right now. And in, and pretty much the top 100 programs are to now at least 90%, I think, sports programming. So at least 90% if not higher. And that's because of all the things we're talking about. Like what is the actual, from a media perspective, like why do people watch sports? You know, watching sports doesn't necessarily provide a functional benefit. Like what do you get out of watching sports in a functional way other than you're able to pass the time, so to speak. But it does provide a very strong emotional benefit. And like the idea of people being invested in the teams in a emotional sense is the core a core benefit if not the core benefit of sports and sports teams leagues events athletes like that is the core benefit and the fact that fans are are passionate about their teams regardless of their on at times or at least in some perspectives regardless of their on field on course on ice performance shows that it has such a strong emotional resonance that again i think is a feature of sports it's similar to artwork right what is Again, what is the actual emotion, you know, functional benefit of artwork? Nothing, but like the emotional benefit is so strong for right. some people anyway, that that's what creates, in part creates value. Then that's not the only reason, but like there's obviously a speculative Scarcity nature in art. And yeah, exactly. But yeah. like, exactly. So those are all good points. But yeah, I mean, there are some, you know, like playing sports has functional potentially benefits. So like it can provide you an outlet to obviously improve your health and stress. Um, yeah, exactly. But it's... It's just I, I, sports is a very good example. And that actually is one of the use cases that we talk about in the book also is it's not that's not only applicable to sports. Like if you look at a big sponsor of sports or, or Coca-Cola or Pepsi or other you know soda beverage companies, you know, particularly in a commoditized market, like, you know, what is actually soda for the most part? It is carbonated you know, water. water. Right. Exactly. <laughs> But like, what's the difference? You know, there are some taste differences, obviously, between Mm Coca-Cola and Pepsi. But typically, people don't want a soda because like you could buy a soda stream and make your own soda at a lower price point. But you want a Coca-Cola, you want a Pepsi. And that's because of the emotional connection typically that people have in part 
the emotional connection that people have with those products and those companies. So while we're, we're obviously focused on sports, that is one of the features of sports. And that is what makes sports licensing so valuable. It's people, and we have, and again, I apologize, I'm definitely curious to hear your take on this. <laughs> one of the articles that we wrote and or I've written about is one of the reasons that Lowe's sponsors the NFL is because people want chairs with their team on it. It's one of the reasons Anheuser-Busch works with the NFL also is that there's a Bud Light is beer with your team on it. And they see sales increase when there's the teams on the cans. And Lowe's is obviously betting that there's an increase in their products when, you know, they can license the NFL, you know, name, image, and likeness. NIL, again, name, image, and likeness. The reason to work with athletes is because they provide a emotional benefit that's differentiated compared to other channels. Yeah, they do. And they provide a centering point. So inside baseball for listeners, in the course of the break, I, I moved. I now live <laughs> outside of Indianapolis, Indiana. And Adam and I were talking before we started recording, you know, living the past 16 years in just major metropolitan areas, mostly in Chicago, but London as well. And here in Indianapolis, the Colts are the biggest thing going. You go to a Lowe's or you go to a convenience store, you go to the grocery store. There's so much activation with the Colts and those brands, whether it's soda or beer or chairs or any other product that you could see, it's more stark to me in how well it works living here. And the reason I say that is that's so much of the conversation. When you live in a place like Chicago with the population that it has, the diversity of people and the interests that are there, and I'm not saying the diversity of interest isn't here in Indianapolis, but you could go in certain parts of Chicago and in certain neighborhoods or certain places on a Sunday and not even know that football existed. Whereas here in Indianapolis, it really is a big driver of social activity and community. And so I think you're right about how that emotional attachment really brings those things together. I'd be interested though, Adam, we're talking about trading cards. Do you have an, an example of the board game um, kind of tangible asset that we were talking about? Because I'm somebody who loved board games. We played a lot of board games. Actually, Monopoly was banned in my home as kids because it got a little too heated. But I love board games, and I think it's a really great way to engender that, especially in the pandemic again. Do you have a good example of a brand or a team or inside of sports that that's been used? Yeah, the most commonly used example, and there are several articles, ones that have come out recently, is a game called Stratomatic, and there's versions, different versions of Stratomatic. And the recently, I believe the CEO of Stratomatic Media just said, like, this has been the highest, you know, this time period has been the highest grossing revenue time period for that company. There was also a new game that came out that featured NBA players. That was a, a kind of a derivation. It, it's a physical game, which had, I believe it has a 20-sided dice that you can roll, and then you could see different players. get. You can simulate basically, sort of simulate a game in novel ways based on the dice. That's one of the challenges with the in kind of the, the the CEO of this company that just launched this game. I mean, they're launching. I think they're launching a racing game coming up soon. Is you know one of the challenges with you know either Stratomatic or some of these other games in the past has been if you really want like a simulation game, NBA Two K is a simulation game. A board game, like you're saying with Monopoly, has to create a novel experience and create unique ways of connection for it to be successful. So it's not necessarily that they're, you know, board games and sports are not necessarily trying to replicate the actual gameplay itself, because that's typically done better in video games. It's trying mm -hmm. to leverage the IP in which this company had worked and has developed relationships with the MBPA and the NBA to leverage the players and the IP so that when you do this, you can have the experience of 
putting players in novel context and doing novel things using this 20-sided die, 20-sided die in order to kind of have them do different things and have different power-ups. So that's the idea is like board games, you know, putting people in novel context to connect with other people in fun ways and create this level of engagement and community um, is definitely something that board games have been really good at. Monopoly in the past has, I, I can't remember a specific sports IP example or if they've done a sports IP, but it definitely has leveraged IP to create, you know, different iterations of the Monopoly game beyond the core Monopoly game by leveraging. Oh, yeah, I think we have two of them here. I went to undergrad at Purdue. I think there's a Purdue one here. My wife went to undergrad yeah. at Vanderbilt. I think there's a Vanderbilt one here somewhere. So it's definitely, they definitely have used that for sure. Yeah, exactly. And the original version of like Stratomatic was like, I think it was, you know, like those, I don't know, I can't remember specifically Stratomatic, but there's like the NFL vibrating game, mm -hmm, you know, where mm -hmm. you could put the players on and they would vibrate and move around. Eventually that was the idea is that there was a version of simulation that you could do to players. And that is actually a simulation version was one of the original use cases of Stratomatic. I think it was 1981 baseball strike where when they were on strike, Stratomatic simulated the all-star game in a novel mm. way using a board game as an example. So all of that is just to say like there. The reason that people, the argument is that people, you could have a basketball game with a 20-sided die without NBA players, but would people want to play it or they want to play it with their favorite players? Usually, or a lot of times the answer is yes, we want our favorite players and favorite teams. And we want to do that because that's an instant way to build community. People know their favorite players and their favorite teams, exactly what you were talking about in Indianapolis. Um now, what you're talking about is an interesting idea about Indianapolis versus Chicago. That is one of the things that we examine in my company, but also just in class, right? What is the the size of the market penetration versus what is the size of the market? And that's something that's constantly something marketers think about in a licensing contest or otherwise. Is like, do we want the largest market, but a smaller percentage, or do we want to dominate a smaller market? What can be better uh, and that's something licensors, you know, and license sports licensing think about all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting because it's the big fish and small pond and vice versa argument. But, you know, it's interesting, the common thread that you talked about there with the Monopoly thing, the card, talking about trading cards and, and sort of that emotional connection that you get. Like even just thinking about the Monopoly games, there's more of an emotional connection that you have with where you went to undergrad, the streets and the, those places being something that that you know well right it makes mon monopoly more interesting because of that connection so I, I, you definitely see the common thread with those but then if you spin it forward the other end of the spectrum that you talked about to start around generative ai there's been so much talk in every facet of media around sports but just in technology the wider media overall about you know chat gpt specifically but but ai and generative ai and what can be done there and i think my class centered around technology, there's a lot of questions about this. And I think what's really interesting about those questions is there's concern. Yeah. And the concern comes from, is this going to change sports, change sports business? Is it going to impact my job? Is it going to impact the way I interact with this content or these games? And to have an answer to that right now, I have my thoughts and overall, but we're in such the infancy of that, that so much still has to play out. But I think Adam, when you look at something like generative AI, specifically things like chat GPT, where do we see the uses of those in sports? I mean, what is the most, you know, one quickest to market use case in your view and what you do creating value for teams and brands and these and so on, the most valuable use case for something like that? 
Yeah, those are both good questions. I'm curious to hear your feedback on it as well. But in terms of answering the question, the most the use case for this has been applicable most, if you want to say, which is it's still a semi-limited use case, is automated story recaps. So the idea that ESPN or other sports, you know, ESPN, Fox Sports, Turner, et cetera, that it typically used to have a beat reporter could now have somebody who could now have automatic automated recap that uses a form. Maybe, maybe not chat GPT specifically, but a form of probably what is considered generative AI to create automated recaps uh, of games and be able to do that without having to, that's a very tangible and use case that in terms of job replacement that you're talking about, that could be an issue. Now, part of this has already started to happen a little bit where the media side has moved much more towards competitions and commentary rather than news, certainly breaking news is definitely a area of growth but besides breaking news like traditional sports news and the sports center model has been challenged significantly because people are able to break news so quickly in other platforms that the idea of having and and the recaps themselves typically because people know the scores quickly have in general been not always but in general have been a way to uh, those are something that could be automated because they do follow typically, but not always a consistent pattern. So that's the most immediate use case that's you know already arguably in use to a certain degree right now. The most valuable use case, I think, is what we've been talking about with sports licensing. If ChatGBT is something that can be used to create content, people are going to want to, anytime people want to, content is being created, they almost always want to create it about sports and about, like we've talked about, the favorite teams, events, athletes, et cetera, you know, influencers to a certain degree, products. Like, And in order to do that, really, is that you're going to need to license the IP around the leagues. And I do think that could be a substantial revenue stream. Uh, what will be interesting, you know, the highlights and media aspect of it, do companies, whether it's traditional broadcasters, either broadcasters or multi-system video providers or cable companies or the streamers, are they going to be able to create content leveraging those video platforms? That's obviously a question that needs to be answered. But in terms of just like, I want to see, like I was saying earlier, Michael Jordan in a Bears jersey, like ChatGPT should, and OpenAI in theory, should be licensing the Bears and the NFL IP. So that can be created in a way that people then could share and, and do a lot of things with it. So I think that's a valuable use case. The only other, another valuable use case that's very much in its infancy is on the search side. And Microsoft you know, reportedly is exploring a deal with OpenAI to potentially leverage ChatGBT from a search perspective. And sports and search have had a lot of commonalities or connections. And the idea that that sports could leverage search functionality in the way that's being talked about is something that could also have an immediate and tangible impact, particularly if Microsoft starts to figure out a way to leverage, or even Google starts to leverage uh, generative AI to facilitate and focus on search. Yeah, I certainly have some thoughts around this. There's one thing you brought up, though, that that is interesting, that you talk about licensing that IP from the leagues, from the teams, and so on. I think it might be worth a little bit of an explainer around how something like ChatGPT works and those large language models and how they work. The question that I have for you on, you know, I guess from my side, I, I certainly understand the tech part of it, right? But where these things get married up is that IP, that content that can be fed into ChatGPT and so on. Is it a case today where, you know, from, from 
the overall understanding of, of how something like ChatGPT works is that it's just fed enormous data sets from across the internet or other other sources that then allow it to spit back out you know, certain things that the use case that you and I were talking about before we started recording is an interesting one where my wife was kind of challenging me on this. She's an attorney and she's like, oh, I couldn't do something in that realm. And I said, typed into chat GPT, write me a, a rental agreement and it spit one out. Well, that's relatively easy in the sense that it's probably been fed millions and millions of rental agreements and just knows how to spit those things back out because you can find them from a standard language perspective. But what you're getting at is more that proprietary data that teams have, whether it's news or it's player information or for statistics or whatever it is. Is that where you see that IP being used in those models or is it something more expanded from there? Yeah. So just on the technology side, that's exactly right. Right. I mean, part of the reason it's just building large data sets and leveraging large data sets typically collected from the Internet. In order to do that, one of the reasons that actually OpenAI released ChatGPT3 is to crowdsource arguably new information or way to structure information or ways to create limits to see what people would actually use it for. And are there use cases to prevent fraud, abuse and those types of things as well? And how how does it structure that? Also to find edge cases that it didn't normally find in, you know, leveraging large data sets and basically crowdsourcing edge cases, which are typically cases that are not that common, but are ones that are very visible in this context. So that's one thing that they would use it. But actually from an IP perspective, that's actually not what I'm saying, although it is an interesting idea, because typically a lot of the proprietary data that people don't want available is just not available. It's literally like the logo, like the name, image, and likeness stuff. Like if somebody wants to create the Bears, like Michael Jordan, a Bears jersey, they need to use the Chicago Bears logo. That is obviously available in a variety of contexts on the internet, but in typical copyright law, you can't use somebody's yep. trademark IP like that in a commercialized, in potentially anyway, but particularly a commercialized way. And the idea of like, if that would be a way that fans and to increase fan engagement, that's an, a great way to increase fan engagement is let pl- people kind of do what, what they want with their content, but the teams and leagues and, players should be compensated for that right. because it is the IP that they are creating. So the name, you know, name, image, likeness, all of that stuff, uh, in theory, if it's using in a commercialized content way as protected by copyright law, which is not every use case, but a lot of the use cases we're talking about, Especially at least that's my understanding. Yeah. yeah. That, 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 that's what literally like that, that is one of the things that like the the NFL or the players associations, that is one of their most valuable assets. And whether it's the MVPA or the licensing it for video games or trading cards mm-hmm. and leveraging are two specific examples of where the PAs generate a significant portion of their revenues. And this would be potentially an ex- a third use case like that, uh, where you could generate a significant portion of revenues that would be split in some form between the leagues, teams, the owners, and the players. So that, that's definitely an area where could there should be some substantial conversation around if this becomes a bigger deal. That makes sense. That's a good clarification. It's so, as you see it right now, I play around with GPT a lot, DALI a lot, also created by OpenAI. And you can do silly things like it, draw me a picture of a cat that's riding a unicorn on the moon while holding a lightsaber and it spits it out multiple versions in seconds. But it kind of parlays into my thoughts about this is that, you know, a lot of the, the the things that I get in in my course from students is that worry, that fear, that whatever it is, concern about you would know better than me. But we are so far away from something like Westworld or Ex Machina or not even close. But 
I look at it, something like ChatGPT as a tool. It's another tool, just like the internet. The internet, when it came around, before that, if you're wanting to write a long form story, you were going to the library to research, you were doing interview, and then it became a tool that was in your pocket. It, was, it made it much easier. This is the same thing. And what you say about the licensing of name, image, and likeness and those things makes a lot of sense because I can see really interesting use cases of creative tools, right? Creative tools to put a license Dali, and then inside of Dali have all of the plugins that are the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, to be able to then license those things and create content to create imagery, advertising videos, and so on that uses the creative talents of the person, but also some of the generative AI, and they have the proper rights to be able to continue to use those. We're so much in the infancy of this. And I think people often think of AI and machine learning as, oh, we're going to replace the humans, right? It's not a short-term use case for sure, but two, I don't think it's the most valid use case. I think it's, again, augmenting human ability and the ability to do different things in different realms. The licensing one you mentioned is a great one, but things, searching databases of contracts or understanding player injury history and those types of things, brute force stuff that they can, can go through that. So I think that how it gets applied on those levels will be really interesting to see. The one thing I do know is it's not going away. Even if you just look at it in the last month, there's been so much talk about it. It's so prevalent across and it's continuing to evolve. And like you said, open sourced and just kind of put out there to draw in more, more data, to, to get people using it and see how it's used and see what comes out of it. And so the more and more that people use it and the more and more we see what comes out of those things, I think the different use cases are going to continue to, to shift and move. Yeah, I, I, th- I mostly agree. I think there's some difference. I have maybe a little bit of difference. Right now, the most valuable use case for machine learning generally is when humans and machines work together. That's typically where you get the best outcome in exactly the ways you're describing. When machines can be leveraged for their full functionality in the way that they're designed and and used in the ways that you're talking about, absolutely, that's definitely beneficial. I also agree that like this generative intelligence, maybe not exactly the way it is now, but it in general, you know, like the use case for this exactly the, for the reasons you described, I do think this is a long-term and clearly there's a lot of investment capital that agrees with you. And it's spent a lot of, whether it's venture capital or private equity or otherwise, or institutional investors or angel investors has spent, I don't, will continue to invest a lot of money in this space. And that's typically, again, a good indication, not the only, but a indication that this is an area that will continue to see development. Um, and in terms of like what you're talking about, like as machines replacing humans, the the main breakout, again, this is a little bit simplistic and maybe some people will disagree, but the main breakout for machines to become like humans is to do something which is called artificial general intelligence. The reasons that humans are where they are or a reason the humans are where they are in the evolutionary ladder is something called in gen- called general intelligence, which is the ability to, in some part, core elements of general intelligence are prediction and abstraction. So like you, humans can take things in multiple different contexts and apply similar frameworks. Humans are not good at certain things of prediction, but in terms of like sentence completion or, you know, sentence completion or driving is a very good example where humans can adapt. And one of the reasons that humans are able to drive is that because you've seen essentially so much data and you have these networks of within your brain, you're able to, to know certain things about driving that are still very and arguably impossible for machines to do now. That is why there are not driverless cars. It's very difficult to use current versions of machine learning to create driverless cars, which is why it's taking arguably taking a lot longer than people, not just, but including Elon Musk have 
predicted. So like that's the idea of artificial general intelligence does not to be on the horizon anytime in like the next five, 10 years, we'll say, but particularly in the near future. What I think is different, and this is the history of technology generally, is technology does displace human for certain specific tasks. And that has been the history of technology generally. Unfortunately for people, because this is there's a human element to this, the idea of like we just talked about with generative AI and recaps, people used to do the recaps of games. Mm-hmm. Now, potentially machines could do that. You know, with, with the advent of streaming, it could, you know, obviously more and more companies are trying to move away from traditional ways of broadcasting games on television sets through cables to digital platforms, right? That changes the paradigm and the the value structure. So technology... Uh, you know, and you, you, obviously the advent of the car replaced the horse and the advent potentially of flying cars may in some form or planes, you know, like there's been, yep. that is just a history of technology, unfortunately. And you can look at it even in the context of Fortune 500 companies, obviously like Kodak used to be a consistent Fortune 500 companies and basically no longer exists because it wasn't able to move from physical photography to digital photography. Right. Blockbuster, you know, obviously got displaced by Netflix. So it's just like technology and iterative technology, unfortunately, does have displacement effects. I think it's unrealistic to say that not everybody, particularly even people listening to this podcast, may not be impacted by that. But in terms of like machines taking over the world as like displacing <laughs> humans from a, a general intelligence perspective, that is definitely far off. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's good that we've squashed that concern. And you mentioned Netflix, and it wouldn't be a discussion between the two of us if I didn't didn't talk about streaming and sort of where that's at. And we can get, get out of here on this. But I think you talked about iterative and building upon those things. And streaming has been one of those things that we saw as sort of the next evolution of content consumption, television, for lack of a better term. We see some pullback on that now in the sense that had supported models from all of the streaming services, subscriber growth has slowed in some ways. The one thing that's interesting is that most of the, the streaming services are looking to get into sports rights. You see Apple with Major League Baseball on Friday nights, whatever, Amazon obviously Thursday night football. The question is always, is, is Netflix going to get into sports rights? What I think is really interesting is back to their Formula One use case and back to what you talked about at the very beginning of this, on the continuum of creating that community, popularity of Formula One in this country has grown exponentially. And a big part of that is the drive to survive show on Netflix. I think that right. consumers love that. A lot of the talk and a lot of things that you see around Netflix going after sports rights is more for that reason. And what I mean is let's create content around that that builds a community, whether it's around Formula One or they were in the running for ATP tennis, but but dropped out of that eventually. But the goal was to create content around that and use the live event as just part of that, but have human interest pieces and these series from behind the scenes. And I think we're going to see more of that building that sort of holistic experience around sports, which plays back into your your point you were making around trading cards. It's kind of the same thing in a way of creating that engendered community because for better or worse, but gone are the days of the monoculture of where like everybody's watching the same thing all the time. And when you get in these niche markets and, but can create really ardent fans, there's real value in that. And I think that the streaming services see that now the success of Thursday night football is certainly there. I don't know if the success of, of major league baseball and Apple TV has borne out just yet, but if you look at Netflix and the way they position themselves and some of the 
the really interesting storytelling that they do, you could see it being a really valuable piece of that puzzle if they wanted to go after some sports rights in general. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. One, again, in general, I have alignment, but I think what's interesting about, you know, even just said Amazon being successful, I guess it depends on what your definition of success is, yeah. right? The, yeah. the ratings, according to Nielsen, are down 41% from on Amazon Thursday night versus what they were on, you know, on non-streaming platforms or not streaming only platforms. Amazon also, you know, it's unclear and potentially, as has been reported, complicated at best if they're able to get Prime subscriptions or people to subscribe to Prime outside of the first week. So is it successful in the, the production of the game or successful? Absolutely. Did it have a similar and interesting ways of presenting the game? Absolutely. Is it necessarily driving the ratings, which is what the NFL cares about the most typically? No, it's not the same as it was when it was on over the air and cable broadcasting. To your point about Netflix, one of the things that they are, so you were talking about tennis. So the box-to-box productions, which produced Drive to Survive. Now, I believe the tennis version, Breakpoint, I think it's called, is being released this after the Friday after this podcast airs. So it'll be interesting to see whether it's something that's idiosyncratic to Formula One and the characters and the storylines and the way that it's produced. And the star, like the drivers, are they idiosyncratically more interesting in F1? And that drives the community around it. And because people have never really heard of it, maybe they're because there was more familiarity with tennis players. It'll be interesting to see. And they're also a PGA Tour version in production too. What Netflix has found is that for its business model, that exactly what live rights has not been profitable, but content around sports has been profitable. Netflix, it depends on what you're, you're using a more expanded version of sports. Gaming has something that Netflix is investing a lot into and mm-hmm. potentially having unique titles on Netflix as a way to drive subscriber growth is interesting. On the flip side, you're exactly right. Amazon, Apple, um, YouTube, obviously with its deal with the NFL does see sports as potentially either a lost leader and that sports will drive, you know, knock on effects to other parts of a business or to your point about this is the only thing that is ubiquitous in culture, given the television, you know, viewership numbers is that if the only arguably monochromatic thing is sports and the idea of that, if you can own the monochromatic content creation, then that potentially has either direct profitability or knock-on effects from the profitability perspective. Now, obviously, there's arguments that that's not true, and you know people have debated that, but that's the one of the bets or the reason, arguably, that's one of the reasons that these companies are making these level of investments. And these companies are all publicly traded companies, and these are all things that they have to think about and discuss. Again, I think that's more of a comment at the margins. Your general thesis, again, and obviously, you're an expert in this space, and it's definitely something that you obviously you can provide more detail and you do to your class. But I think that's the idea is people and I think goes kind of a nice to your point about closing. You know, people want sports, people desire sports, people want sports content, they want licensed product sports. Like sports is and seems to be always in demand. Now how people consume that content continues to evolve and change. And I think will continue to evolve and change. But I think the idea of people wanting sports content should be something that continues or at least is a good bet to continue on a go forward basis. Yeah, I would agree with you. How it, it's packaged and presented to consumers continues to change. But the core product is still the same because of a lot of the things we talked about starting the conversation with trading cards. Trading cards are a thing that you can go all the way back to the beginning of baseball. It's cool to see how some of those hallmarks still stay, but shift and change and move with the times. And I think sports is unique 
in that way, for sure. From this conversation, I think what's exciting is that this season, we have a lot of really great things to cover. And I think that we'll hit on a lot of these topics and have a lot of great guests, but I'm really looking forward to this season and all the things that we can cover, especially with the different guests that we bring in. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, obviously we provided our perspective and obviously a lot of my perspective, but we <laughs> provide our perspective on this, but that is the idea is we want to bring in industry leaders, people who are working on this on a day-to-day basis, people who are focused on these topics, the idea of thinking about legacy businesses in the context of new content, new ways of producing and distributing content. Uh, or new ways of reading collectibles or new ways of thinking about merchandising, licensing. Those are things that are top of mind of business leaders. It's top of mind for a lot of our students in our program, top of mind for a lot of the professors in our program and bringing the what's happening right now in a professional context, we think can be a real benefit to our audience. Absolutely. And we'll continue to try to do that over the course of the season. There'll be interviews from across those business leaders, but also we can have the opportunity to hear some new voices. There may be some new voices that you hear on the podcast this season, and we're excited to get into it. You'll intersperse episodes where Adam and I do this and talk about some of the current topics and and how they they mold those things. But it's good to see you again, Adam. And it's good to talk to you. And I'm excited to, to get this season rolling. Yeah, good to talk to you as well. Good to see you. Take care. You too.